You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I'm joined by Scott Phillips to discuss how to invest during times of max pessimism. Scott is married to and manages money with Lauren Templeton, who is Sir John Templeton's great niece. My co-host William Green in his book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, referred to Sir John Templeton as probably the greatest international investor of the 20th century. Sir John's life was outlined in chapter two of William's book, and it was titled The Willingness to Be Lonely. As Sir John was an amazing independent thinker who wasn't afraid to stray away from the crowd and invest in markets where investors wouldn't even think for a second to touch. These markets were oftentimes the most distressed and offered the highest level of asymmetric returns. During this episode, Scott and I chat about what helped Sir John Templeton think independently and have the courage to stray from the crowd, what Sir John learned living through the Great Depression, how Scott's fund capitalized on the market panic of March 2020, areas of the market Scott deems to be significantly undervalued, why U.S. investors should consider diversifying away from the dollar, Scott's current thoughts on investing in China, how Scott thinks about shorting market bubbles similar to Sir John during the tech bubble, Scott's thoughts on continuing to be optimistic about the future during an era of doom and gloom headlines, and so much more. This was a really fun chat, and I really hope you enjoy today's episode with Scott Phillips. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And like I said in the intro, I'm joined by Scott Phillips. Scott, thank you for joining me on the show today. It's great to be here, Clay. Looking forward to the conversation. I wanted to start this discussion by talking about Sir John Templeton. For those in the audience who aren't aware, Scott's wife, who he manages money with, is Lauren Templeton, which is Sir John's great niece. And Scott has actually co-authored three books about Sir John, including Investing the Templeton Way and The Templeton Touch. And in preparation for this chat, I also revisited William Green's chapter in his book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. That was on Sir John. It was chapter two, which was titled The Willingness to be Lonely. And the subtitle states that I wanted to share here, to beat the market, you must be brave enough, independent enough, and strange enough to stray from the crowd. And William described Templeton as probably the greatest international investor of the 20th century. So I'm super excited to dive more into this and dive into some of Scott's knowledge in knowing Sir John. And in the book, William also talks about how humans, they have this natural tendency to stick with the crowd, you know, selling stocks when people are panicking and buying stocks when there's that hype and euphoria. And I just think of to my own experience, how much easier it feels to want to buy the stock that's recently gone up and then be a little bit more cautious with the stock that's gone down. So Scott, let's start it off by asking you, what do you think helped Sir John Templeton overcome this temptation of going with the crowd and you know his willingness to stray away from it and blaze his own path? Sure, uh, Clay, great question with um, lots of potential facets to explore here. I think that you know a big piece of it just goes back to his upbringing. His parents were both extremely interesting people, great role models. So his father was the town lawyer, but he was kind of uh, he was referred to as a super entrepreneur. So very sharp and ambitious. Uh, in addition to being a lawyer, he had cotton gins. He had rental properties. 
He sold insurance. He was just very ambitious, high energy, and focused on making money. And then his mother, by contrast, was extremely well educated for a woman you know, at the turn of the uh, 20th century, the early 1900s. She was college educated. She studied Greek, Latin, and mathematics. She didn't marry until she was older. She too was very enterprising, but in different ways. She was very altruistic. She supported local charities. And uh, so he kind of had these two people in his life that I think instructed him at a behavioral level. But they did not provide any verbal instruction to him to the extent that you know most parents today tightly manage their kids, uh, what they want their kids to think, what they want them to do, what their goals should be. Sir John and his older brother, Harvey Jr., which is Lauren's grandfather, had really no direction. They were kind of turned loose, but they had these key role models in their lives. And so they're really just kind of left to their own devices. Anything they learned, they had to go learn themselves. So Sir John always remarked that if he asked his mother a question about something, she wouldn't provide a direct answer, but a week or so later, there would be a book left out on the coffee table. So he was, he and his brother were extremely independent, autodidactic. They taught themselves all kinds of different things because they had to. So they saw these kind of superlative role models who were successful in the things they were doing but they had to go figure it out for themselves. And I think that kind of paradigm, that way of going about things was a huge influence on him as a human being. And the other thing was, you know, they lived in the country. It was a rural setting. So it wasn't like a city where you would observe convention and compare yourself and say, well, we don't do it that way or make comparisons and learn through all these kind of social proofing and social conventions. They just thought for themselves and did what they wanted to do for the most part. And they made a lot of mistakes along the way. But just to give you an, an example of how extreme this was, I mean, Sir John asked for a shotgun when he was eight. I think his mom resisted until he was 10, but he still got one. And she just thought that it was in God's hands. I mean, that was her philosophy that like he would figure it out. He would be safe. It would work out. And uh, so he kind of had this internal mechanism, this drive to learn and to think independently without anyone ever really correcting it. And uh, it's fascinating because it really, it manifested itself in really just excellence. A number of different levels as a child, he was a star student. He was a great athlete. Uh, he was well-liked. But then moving alongside that, there were cultural influences too. So the, the big thing was, you know, at this time in America, there was a lot going on in terms of self-reliance, living the American dream. You are your thoughts. The greatest importance in Winchester, Tennessee at that time was your character. Who you were as a person. My word is my bond. So that was your your worth. And so that was also tied to, you know, your religion and, and church. And so there was kind of this, you know, higher calling or higher presence that was supporting all of that, this kind of upward pull. So he was, you know, just to review, he was very independent. He thought for himself. He didn't really care much about what other people thought about his actions. He thought they were right. And that, that's the other piece that I should mention. He had a lot of self-confidence, not arrogance but great self-confidence. He believed that what he was doing was correct. And uh, by the time he you know, got to Yale and went into business, that was his mindset. So that, that's the, those are the pieces that really kind of informed him as an investor later, but also 
the the last piece that I'll mention is alongside those, you know, cultural underpinnings, the positive thinking, like I said, the Norman Vincent Peale, the Ralph Waldo Emerson, the self-reliance, all of that individualism, which is a huge part of American culture and thinking at the time, that gave him this huge sense of purpose and living a deliberate life and serving others. That was his ethos. And that's what he wanted to do. And he took that extremely seriously and organized his life around those facets. That was the driving force. And so for him, you know, to be successful, to help others with their wealth, it was who he was. That's who he saw himself. That's what he thought his talents were oriented towards. That's what he saw his purpose was on earth. I mean, it was just like really heavy stuff. So he was just all in, completely dedicated to being successful as a money manager. And it was the independent thinking and seeing how that worked in the markets that eventually culminated in a great track record over time, because he was always just thinking for himself and going the other way when most people were doing the popular thing. Yeah. Prior to this chat, I was just thinking about what was it about Sir John that, you know, really led to this amazing career that he had. And one of the themes I think that you mentioned there was just his immense work ethic. You know, he had this underlying purpose that he sort of found through his upbringing and the direction his family gave him, as you mentioned. And to achieve extraordinary levels of success in the investment industry, you really have to have that sort of work ethic he had. And I remember you telling the story of he was just always looking for the next bargain, you know, always searching in various markets and where things were beaten up most. I wanted to turn to when he uh, started college. He went to Yale in 1930. And I think part of that work ethic he developed, it kind of came for good reasons. This was the very start of the Great Depression. And I'm reminded of the book I read that covered, uh, talked about the investment career of, of Benjamin Graham. And he just had a treacherous time mm -hmm. investing through the Great Depression. And it's a reminder of just how difficult of a period this was for everybody. And you've stated that Sir John, he was really shaped by these big events such as the Great Depression. So what do you think the Great Depression taught him other than this, you know, probably this work ethic that he developed early on in his life? Oh, there were a number of lessons that came out of those events, I think. First of all, kind of going back to 1930, 1931, you know, I always shared this story about how, you know, just prior to his sophomore year, his father him aside and said, I can't even spend one more dollar towards your education. You know, I, I can't support you. And so he was fortunate that he had an uncle who was willing to fund him returning to Yale. But once he got back to Yale his sophomore year, he was on his own. And so what he did was he decided that he was going to make it work. And he worked harder in school. He got better grades. He obtained scholarships. Until he you know, was able to get those scholarships, he was working part-time. And that between the part-time work and the, um, the scholarships, I covered about three quarters of what he needed to pay his tuition and room and board and food and support himself. And the last quarter, he made through playing poker with his classmates. And so you know, that was kind of the, this you know, legendary view of, of what his mind was like and what he could do you know, in terms of working with numbers and probability and reading emotions across the table. But what it really did, you know, taking a step back, it did really two important things came out of that. First, and he said this, he learned that 
I learned that it was, it seemed like this huge tragedy at the time when my father couldn't support me anymore, but it was the best possible thing that could have happened. Because if that did not happen, I would not have worked as hard, I would have not have gotten to the top of my class, and I would not have obtained a Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford. And then the other piece was because, you know, his father was very successful, he was also more volatile. Like he had ups and downs in his money-making you know, ventures, and he wasn't necessarily a saver. And so both Sir John and his brother, Lauren's grandfather, they were deeply affected by that. They both became intensely frugal and thrifty. And so I think between the experience of wanting financial stability by watching their father's ups and downs, but then also watching what was going on in the depression, both were big savers. And so when Sir John, you know, went through the depression, whether it was, you know, at Yale or when he was beginning his career on Wall Street, he knew that he wanted to be this, you know, figure that could generate wealth for people. But he also knew that he needed the same, you know, exemplary habits within himself. And so it was a huge piece of who he was. And it was authentic all the way through. And you saw that in a lot of people that you know, were affected or lived through the depression. They just have completely different attitudes towards scarcity, wastefulness, saving. Sir John saved 50% of everything he made and he didn't have to do that. I mean, even like, you know, when Lauren and I were working with him, he was still just extremely frugal and didn't waste anything. He, uh, you know, Lauren and I both recall after the Asian financial crisis, he had bought Kia Motors and he had invested in the Matthews Fund as well, with the Matthews Korea Fund, and just made a, a large sum off of those investments and still refused, even at the prodding of his assistant, to go buy a Kia automobile. He said they were too expensive. Finally, she kind of tricked him into doing it, but that was always his attitude and that was baked into who he was. So those experiences from the depression, you know, informed all of his behaviors going forward. So they were profound. So both finding the positive within the negative, and then kind of the financial practices of being a saver and preparing for new opportunities and not wasting anything. There was a great story of him even you know, prior to selling the Templeton funds, where I think it was Marty Flanagan told this in the Templeton Touch, or maybe it was in another conversation, but he said he walked into the office one Saturday and he just kept hearing this, bam, bam, this banging on the table. And he was looking around, and he couldn't figure out what it was. And he walked into Sir John's office where it was coming from. And Sir John had gathered up unused scraps of paper and was stapling them into a new legal pad. He wouldn't waste anything. And so it was, he was one of those people who just lived it to the fullest. He was completely authentic. What you saw is what you got. So it's impressive for sure. You made a really good point that really struck me there. It was, you know, talking about how frugal he was living through the Great Depression. And I recall in, you know, just reading more about him, even when he became like extraordinarily wealthy, he sort of still had that attitude of, you know, you shouldn't go out and spend all these frivolous things just because you can. And, uh, you know, he ties that into his faith, you know, the underlying purpose that you talked about, too. And you have children of your own and you're sort of seeing Sir John and living in many ways the way he lived. I was curious if you find it to be a challenge nowadays in today's world. I, I think about how post great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve 
really stepped in and, you know, provided sort of a backstop to financial markets that they really didn't have during that time period of the Great Depression. They kind of let, you know, free markets play their role. And then I also think about how, you know, or the Amazon economy, we can always just hop on our phones and just buy the easy $20, $30 item. And it's just so easy to just, you know, buy things we might not need, but are just super convenient. So do you find that to be a challenge to live out through your own life and then teaching your kids those values as well? Yeah, of course. You know that, I mean, the things you just described are foreign, even to my childhood. I mean, we didn't have these levels of instant gratification and, you know, it, it is challenging, but I think, you know, the most important thing is giving them the independence to take risk and knowing the value of character and understanding the value of a dollar and where it comes from and what it took to earn it. You have to, you just have to make those connections uh, forcible. And uh, it takes a lot of work because a lot of, you know, the things going on, our conveniences fly in the face of that, Um, especially, you know, if they're on social media and looking at the messaging and just constantly being sold things. I mean, these kids, everything is an advertisement. Everything is, you know, geared to get their attention, to distract them, to look, make them focus on something that, you know, is probably not the best use of their time. They're not learning anything. And so the big thing I think that we've done as parents, you know, summer camp is a huge one. Both girls have gone, you know, to summer camp since they were probably eight years old for five weeks. And when you get there, the phones go away. They have no access to that. And so you have to do, it kind of takes them back to what childhood was like for the rest of us pre-internet, which was if you needed something to do, well, guess what? You had to figure it out. Like you had to think and take risk and and make choices. No one's going to sit there and spoon feed you your entire day and helicopter over you and make sure that all these outcomes are 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 being generated and it, it really has enhanced i think their willingness to try new things their ability to interact socially they value i think conversations more whereas you know you encounter a lot of young people today and everything is driven by the phone i remember i think it was a few halloweens ago my oldest daughter had a bunch of friends come over after they were trick-or-treating and here were 10 girls all in a room together. You would think you would hear all this, you know, cackling and talking. And no, they're all quiet in our living room on their phones. None of them were talking together. They're all on the phones. It's the strangest thing. And so I think, you know, from a parent standpoint, you have to find ways to offset that behavior because it's it's not it's not productive. It's not the growth mindset, we should say. It's not gonna help you, I think, in the long term. So yeah, it's it's hard. That's what I'll say. It's very hard today. No question about it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. 
You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So it was in 1938. It was about a decade into the Great Depression. Sir John, he first got into the investment industry. And that's when markets were at their most bleak period in U.S. history. The Great Depression lasted around a decade And it was the following year, he made the bold bet of buying 104 of the most beaten down companies in the U.S. And then once markets ended up rebounding in 1942, he ended up selling those positions, making 5x's money and earning a positive return on 100 out of 104 companies. And it's just so funny rethinking uh, that chapter in, in William's book. He called the broker and told him to buy you know, these 104 names and they're, you know, kind of confused. Why the heck's this guy buying? Like, you know, half these companies are bankrupt. So we're not going to be buying those for you. But he said, no, 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 no. Go ahead and and just place that order. And that story really stuck with me. And, you know, just the sheer independent thinking and, you know, recognizing eventually things are going to turn, you know, when it feels like, of course, a decade into it feels like it's never going to recover. So in knowing Sir John and when you look back at his investment career and studying it, are there any other stories that have really stuck with you that maybe you could share with the audience or just other lessons that really shine through in his career? Yeah, I think even just kind of taking a look at unpacking some of that that initial trade in World War II is informative. I mean, first of all, he had the conviction to do something that most people thought was crazy, but he had also, it was a very well-designed and thoroughly researched idea. Like there was a lot of purpose behind every step in that transaction. First of all, he had the asymmetry he wanted as a value investor. He thought, well, if I lose $100 on this, it'll be offset by another position that'll go up, you know, 10X. But then also he had gone back and studied that the right thing to do from a bottom-up standpoint was to buy the most distressed businesses because in previous wartime periods, 
the U.S. government had taxed away excess profits from healthy companies. So he knew that the loss-making companies rising up to kind of a normal operating level would not have their excess profits taxed away, which would have been the case in healthy companies. So it was one of those instances where it made the most sense to go into the worst of the worst, the junk, not the high-quality businesses. So that's very contrarian in and of itself, especially when you talk to investors today. Most investors, almost all investors, are focused on quality. But then also, you know, he had this long-term view and this willingness to hold on throughout all the bad news that continued to proliferate. But, you know, the thing with, you know, that investment and many of the ones afterwards, you see similar patterns at work. Now, I think what's interesting about his career, most people have heard of, you know, that trade around World War II. A lot of investors have read or heard about him shorting the dot-com bubble and the IPO lockup strategy. But really that, that six decades in between, a lot happened there too. And I think what's interesting to really think about is to really go back historically and contextualize what it was like to make those, all those investments, but also to realize that you know, what we're really looking at when we talk about a trade, it's like watching the winning pass thrown in the Super Bowl and all the chips are stacked against the team. They throw the Hail Mary and win and everyone celebrates and admires it. But it overlooks all the practices and losses and injuries along the way in that career of that you know, quarterback. And so you kind of have to understand, I think, at a more epistemic level, where that behavior comes from. And it goes back to the purpose and the study and the unrelenting drive, the doctrine of the extra ounce that you reference. He always called it the doctrine of the extra ounce. You read one more research report. You take one more company visit. And you put in one more hour of work, and that makes the difference in his mind between a great investor and, and a really you know, fantastic, one of the all-time great you know, performers in any industry or business or, or you know, endeavor, sports, business. And so, you know, when I think about like Japan, you know, when he invested in Japan in the late 1950s, he invested first in the late 1950s. Think about Japan in the late 1950s. They had just been in, through and lost World War II. Americans did not like Japan. There was still a lot of bad feelings. There was a horrible war. A lot of people died. And he was over there looking at investments. And so I think about like, you know, what he walked into, this kind of decimated economy. No one thought, no one would have thought this was a good idea. No one. And I really contextualized it when I was um, working on the Templeton Touch the revised edition. I spoke to a lot of people that knew him and worked with him or had capital from him along the way. And Jim Rogers was one of them. Jim Rogers, of course, you know, co-founded the Quantum Fund with George Soros. And he and Sir John developed a relationship over the years. They were friends. They both attended Yale. They're both from the South. They met each other at an um, event over at Oxford. And so they kept up a relationship over the years. And he just said, you know, Scott, you think about what it was like if you were on Wall Street in the 1960s, and you said, I've got this great investment idea in Japan. He said, people would have laughed you out of the room. There was no room for any of that thinking. That would have been absurd. Like you were completely crazy. And so, you know, he did this. And then it wasn't until the really the 1970s that the Japanese market took off when the US, you know, was in steep decline because of inflation. And, you know, that's something that paid off 15, 20 years later. But when you think about what it took from a psychological standpoint, to even go investigate that. And then the legwork, once he got there as an analyst, was intense. I mean, it's hard enough looking at Japanese stocks today, but 
he went over there and you know there was barely any kind of market infrastructure uh there were brokers but he didn't speak the language and you had to learn the, the accounting and he did all of that and saw that you know from a bottom-up basis all these companies had not consolidated their subsidiaries onto their reported financials and he understood that they were deeply undervalued based on their market quotations and he was willing to invest and hold on to them and Japan and eventually released their capital controls. And that made a big difference. But what he was really seeing was, it goes back to that depression experience at Yale. He went to the most negative situation he could discover and he saw something positive in it. He saw their high savings rates. He saw their industrious attitudes. It reminded him of what Americans had been like you know, earlier in the 20th century when we had this huge kind of industrial boom. He saw the same things. And then he exploited that same paradigm over and over, you know, throughout his career. He saw this kind of this huge, you know, kindling and explosion of human innovation and the will to create and produce. So he exploited that on the heels of the Asian financial crisis in China. You know, all these various markets had opened up. He saw that paradigm and he was willing to go in and do the work and make the investments. And he just exploited it over and over again. But yeah, I mean, there were just, there's so many things. And then the the big stories, I think that people don't really understand. It's just, um, you know, when you look at his career, most people just think of the Templeton Growth Fund or the Templeton Funds. But he actually had a registered investment advisory firm. He was an investment counselor. And he got into the mutual fund business in the, uh, you know, the 1950s. But for most of his career, he was managing money through mutual funds and individual separate accounts. And this was, you know, over on Wall Street, had an office in 30 Rockefeller Center. And he was, it was not what people think of today when they look at his career. So it was far more, you know, individualized. It wasn't scaled like a mutual fund company was, what people think of. And so that was kind of where he spent most of his career. And he was doing all of these innovative things in terms of investing. So he was investing overseas. He was a self-proclaimed quant at a time before there were computers. So he had a lot of analysts doing constant calculations on future earnings because he thought that his value added as a manager to his clients was through an unemotional, systematic kind of scientific process of investing. And that too was very rare on Wall Street. He said that, you know, Ben Graham was really the first person that, you know, popularized that approach and gave the investment industry credibility. And he had taken Ben Graham's class, you know, post-college, you could audit it as a professional. And he was very influenced by that. But, um, you know, he sold that business in 1968 and in his mind, he was basically done. Like he was moving to the Bahamas. So he's, by this point, the business was, I think, the 10th, one of the 10th largest investment firms in the country. So it had been wildly successful. And an insurance company, a life insurance company came in and bought basically his business and all the various funds that he managed except for one. They did not buy the Templeton Growth Fund. And so it was that one fund that he just said, okay, well, you know, it's Canadian domiciled. I understand the tax treatment of U.S. investors. There's not a lot of money in it. There's like $8 million in capital. It's my money and some close, you know, friends. Simple and Growth Fund is the fund that everyone thinks of when they think of Sir John. That is the long 38-year track record that annualized right around 15% after fees. And that's just, you know, 
no one, it's very, it's unlikely anyone will be able to replicate that over a 40-year period in a cash-based mutual fund. So the thing is, in his mind, he was basically done with his career. That was just something he was going to manage on the side. And he was moving to the Bahamas to focus on his philanthropies. He had already decided to award the Templeton Prize. He was just going to study spirituality and pursue all of these other interests. He was kind of done with investing outside of just managing his own money. And it was John Galbraith who ended up being you know, the marketer of all the Templeton funds. He was the president of that life insurance company that he sold all of his funds to. And the life insurance company decided a year later, they were going to move to Los Angeles from New York. John Galbraith said, I don't really want to do that. So he resigned. But sought Sir John, went and met with him down in the Bahamas. And he said, you know that one fine that you kept? I'd like to buy it from you. I remember it had a good track record. And Sir John shrewdly said, "Mm, I don't want to sell it, but I'll partner with you if you want to market it and we can split the profits. And John Galbraith diligently took that so-called mountain chart, which showed its tremendous performance around all the brokerages in the US and that 8 million fund you know, in the span of, let's see, this, so this is, you know, the late 1960s. So they rode, you know, the, the rise in the Japanese market through the 70s. And that $8 million fund became a $12 billion mutual fund empire by 1992. So I think the big lesson here is just this unrelenting persistence and patience and reinvestment. He said that he, every year, he wanted to be a better investor than the year before. And it just shows that no matter how much skill you have, you got to stay in the game because there are circumstances too. And it's just kind of an amazing way to, to look at his career to think that, you know, he was basically, he said he'd never retire. He always wanted to work, but he was more or less done with professional money management. And then all of those circumstances played out. And there he goes. He sold the Templeton funds for $992 million in 1992. And it was all just kind of these, these circumstances. And I just love to think about that and how he just persisted you know, throughout his entire career. And uh, there's so much to learn just about patience and having that purpose and just this unrelenting passion to keep doing it. Did he ever meet Benjamin Graham? He did. He took the course from him post-grad. So he had already finished, you know, Yale and Oxford and was working on Wall Street. And the security analysis class was offered at night to working professionals. And so John took it. Most people, they know Sir John just as the master of finding the biggest bargains and finding where the maximum pessimism is at. Your firm, Templeton and Phillips Capital Management, I'm reminded of you guys how you wrote to your shareholders how you took full advantage of the drop in March 2020. That's the most recent example of you know finding these big bargains overall in the market. Your fund turned over two thirds of its holdings in just a few weeks. And I read that and I was just pretty blown away by uh, that level of turnover in such a short time frame. So I'm super curious to learn how that actually works in practice of you know taking advantage of that point of max pessimism in the midst of managing a fund? So it's, uh, well, it's where we think we can add value as managers. I think that, you know, one of the most important things you can do as a manager is to recognize you're in a highly competitive ecosystem. You are competing with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other investors. And so you have to think about your role in that ecosystem and where you can add value. And so we like to say that there are basically three ways to generate excess returns 
in the markets as an investor. You know, better information, which is what most all of Wall Street is geared towards doing. And you could have a better financial model. Those are the quants. Or you could have better behavior, which comes through in temperament. In any any one of those three, a combination of, of those three can provide an edge to you as an investor. And so what you have to do is make a decision, a deeply honest, introspective self-discussion, like what is realistic? Where can I you know, add value? Am I going to go out and compete with a multi-billion dollar hedge fund that has satellite imagery and unstructured data to get the next edge on customer accounts at shopping malls and Walmart or oil fields or cargo, you get the idea. Like this is, these are intensely competitive forces at play. If you think that you're going to, you know, trade in and out of stocks or game the next earnings, that's, that's a difficult challenge. Similarly, on the quant side, you know, it, you've got your work cut out for you there too. Do you really want to go compete with you know, a team of PhDs from MIT who are working with cutting edge machine learning and AI technology to develop a better model and mine these, these little alpha inefficiencies in the market. That too is very difficult. But I think that from a behavioral standpoint, you know, what we've kind of learned from Sir John is that, you know, you can still do this. Human nature is still at play in the markets. And so, you know, as a money manager, you have to make a decision that that's where, or at least in our case, that's where we can add value. We can do these things that from a distance, people say, oh, yeah, we can, you know, I invest like Warren Buffett. I can go and, you know, buy or I can do this, you know, like Sir John. But time and again, history shows people can't really do that. It's very hard. And so when you tie up kind of your identity and your investment strategies and everything you want to do for your clients becomes that, well, you're going to execute on it because then it becomes almost like a, you know, an existential thing. It's like, wow, well, this is what I am. This is what I do. This is how I add value to people's lives. I try to create, you know, peace of mind by doing these things. And so that's kind of the purpose-driven side of it. Now, from implementation standpoint, it's actually, it just requires a lot of study and patience more than anything. So going into 2020, we had, you know, and still to some degree are st- have still been kind of alarmed about zero bound interest rates and the way capital was allocated over that 10 year period going into COVID. Of course, we didn't know that, you know, COVID would be what it, what it was going to be. I don't think anyone did. No one predicted that. And that's an important lesson too, but we were prepared for whatever was going to come. So we had a list of companies that we thought would do well on a five to 10 year basis during a period of restricted capital, low credit expansion, because the environment of just you know, debt being issued nonstop with almost no repercussions could not last indefinitely. And so we had, you know, a list of companies that we thought that we would like to own in that environment. We saw that as a likely outcome from whatever happened, whatever broke that current paradigm and ended up being COVID. We were prepared and we knew what we wanted to buy. We knew the valuations that we wanted to buy them at. So, you know, one example was, um, it's very uncharacteristic, but you know, again, being flexible and open-minded is a huge piece of, of Sir John's investment philosophy. You know, one of the stocks that took us a long time to understand, and I think we just actively ignored it for many years, was Amazon, because we didn't. That just seemed like a you know a growth stock. Its valuations didn't make any sense. But you know, over time, you you saw that what they're really trying to do is just raise their level of reinvestment to as high a level as possible without having to report 
gap earnings and not worrying about tax liabilities, just constantly reinvesting. And then, you know, once we understood that, I said, okay, well, that, that actually makes sense. But that was in 2016 or 2017. So we looked at the valuation and said, well, that's interesting, but no, moving on. But, you know, we always kind of knew a price that we'd want to pay for it. And so when it hit nine times cash flow in March of 2020, we acted. And we knew that we have to do that if we're going to generate excess returns. Like it's, it's a matter of just living up to your, your word, keeping your word, doing what you say you're going to do on behalf of your clients. And so we had just had a whole list of stocks that we knew we were going to take that action. And when it presents itself, you do it. And I think the important lesson is whether it's COVID or 2008, 2009, or whatever happens in the future, you don't have to predict it. You just have to know how you're going to handle it. You have to upgrade your portfolio. You have to say, I can't time the market, but I do know that I'm going to come out of this better than I went in. And if you have that attitude and have a process to drive that outcome, you're taking control of the situation, you're reframing it, and you're turning what could be a deep negative into a positive. You're finding that positive in what is an overwhelmingly negative event. And you know the other big thing is that and a lot of people say, well, you know, how did you know to have so much cash or, you know, isn't that market timing? We did have cash because, but that's an organic process that comes out of not being able to find bargains. So cash will build up if we can't find the 50% discounts that we want. But, you know, for people that want to, you know, de-risk or, or raise cash in those environments, that's a, I think it's a big mistake. And I think that you've already demonstrated you're not a market timer. If you were, you would have been out of those stocks. So don't, don't memorialize your mistakes and cement your position as a bad market timer. You have to take advantage of the new opportunities that have been created. And that was Sir John's mindset. And that's what we try to do as investors. So for us, it's, it's a, there are long periods of inactivity and, and studying and looking for things that are out of favor. But by far the best environment to invest is when you get those wholesale sell-offs, when you get the forced selling, the margin-based selling. Because then, you know, to us, risk is overpaying for an asset. That's the value perspective. But when prices decline that much, risk has gone down that much too. So it's almost like you know a lot of your potential mistakes are going to be covered up by how low you're getting you know, the stocks. So it's actually the lowest risk environment you could dream of to make an investment. And that's how you have to look at it. And most people you know, in that moment would say, you're crazy. What are you doing? But it, it just makes total sense to us. But it's it's hard. And I, I really think that you have to go through one of those cycles and force yourself to do it and see the results to understand how to do it again. And 08 or 09 was that for us, for sure. It made a big impact on us, both as investors and returns and, and everything. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888 994 34 
888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news, and each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market, so I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I'm curious more too on the implementation of it. You mentioned that you had some cash on hand. And the problem with these big market sell-offs and the big uh, forced selling is that most assets are pretty well correlated. So in March 2020, for example, pretty much anything you owned outside of cash was declining in value as there's essentially a bid for dollars. That's why everything else is declining. And uh, you know, a lot of investors are fully invested. So if they're trying to take advantage of these market gyrations, I would think the rationale would be, okay, Company A is beaten down a whole lot more than company B that you already own. So maybe you sell some of company B and allocate it to the one that's a bigger bargain. So for you, was it mainly the cash being allocated or was there some reallocation in your portfolio as well? I guess I did mention the two thirds of turnover. So I'm, I'm sure both played a role for you. Yeah. So we, 
You know, again, our process is very bottom up and valuation driven. So we actually did have about a 20% cash balance going into March 2020. So the first move was to deploy that cash. And then the second move was to start replacing the pre-existing portfolio. And Sir John's basic rule for that, which we follow is when you find a bargain that's 50% better, has 50% more upside than what you hold, it makes sense, you know, to switch. And that's something that, you know, he would have studied and kind of calculated on his own over many years. And so we follow that and it, it tends to work pretty well. The mantra is to upgrade, you know, go find better growth, better quality, whatever the market's offering, just try to upgrade your portfolio. But yeah, it was both. And if I was fully invested, I would be doing, you know, the same thing. I would be turning over or looking to turn over, you know, what you already are, if they're better opportunities. And I was amazed that Sir John, he said a good bargain to him was something that was 80% below what he estimated to be the intrinsic value. And I remember the story, I think you told him one of your books of he bought like a sofa for practically like a 95 percent discount or something and he, he was always looking for bargains it wasn't just the investment world so when you say a an idea has to be 50 percent better so the upside has to be 50 percent more what sort of time frame are you looking at that sort of upside is it a few years or is it 10 years or how long is it it's usually you know it depends on the amount of upside but you know we're willing to give that scenario five years you know if it's a much deeper discount we'll give it 10 years you kind of you know, measure out the IRR. So one good example, you can, when you get discounts that are deep enough, you kind of get indifferent towards the asset itself. So here's a good example, like going back to, uh, let's see, this would have been in the period of right after the Euro debt crisis and into the taper tantrum in the emerging market. So kind of like 2011, 12, up until 2015. So Around 2012, 2013, ArcelorMittal, the European steelmaker that emerged with the Indian steelmaker, was trading at less than a quarter of its book value. I think it got down to 10% of its book value. So when you model that out, there was three or 400% upside. So I'm pretty indifferent whether it's five years or 10 years at that rate. That's a great return. We'll give it a long leash. And then moving alongside that, you know, during the taper tantrum, emerging markets fell out of favor. And Alibaba had the great misfortune of IPOing at a ridiculously high price. I think it was the end of 14, early 15, and promptly went down 30, 40, maybe it was 50% over the course of the next six to nine months. And that too had a similar kind of return profile when you modeled out the growth and saw the market potential and then the valuation and where it had collapsed, it was also kind of a two to 300% upside scenario. And so in either case, those assets to us, from our perspective, were almost interchangeable. And interestingly, they both, and we let's be clear, we make mistakes as investors too, but both of these worked out. And uh, I think actually, ArcelorMittal did a little bit better, you know, from a total return standpoint. The problem you're going to run into if your idea is to hold and, and let things compound is you go into a cyclical kind of NAV style investing relationship, big discount to NAV, like a steel maker or something like that you know, you're going to have to sell it eventually with, you know, something more consumer driven with a, this kind of long growth runway, you could potentially hold it for a very long time, assuming, you know, all things being equal, the risk are appropriate, the valuation stays low enough and so on. So we actually ended up holding Alibaba until uh, May of 2020. That's when we sold it. We replaced it with the US stock. 
You know, and just thinking about the past markets in the past 15 years or so, I think about some of the areas that investors have sort of strayed away from or valuation disparities continue to stick around. I think about two areas that you've highlighted in your annual report is the small cap space and international markets. And I'm curious in looking back at Sir John's career, if there were like periods where you know, investors sort of doubted him where he's in a trade for maybe two, three, four years. It isn't really going anywhere. But eventually he's right about that trade where, you know, the patient side of this is I just think that's worth highlighting and mentioning again, because these bargain type ideas, you know, it, it takes some time for the market to agree with you sometimes. And you really have to test your conviction, test your thesis and continue to uh, rethink whether you're really right about it. Because with the quality names that you said, a lot of people can, you know, are sort of attracted to these days. It's a, what a lot of people talk about, uh, including myself, admittedly, you know, those, you know, when investors are continuing to sort of pile into those, it continues to keep working. And um, you get this reinforcing cycle where they ignore what uh, they were initially pessimistic about, and then they're continuing to add to, and then the momentum sort of plays into that as well. So did you see that in Sir John's career where, you know, he sort of went through these periods where maybe his returns weren't as good, but eventually he saw this drastic outperformance over a period later? Yeah. I mean, the basic reality is, and, and he said it, you want to have better performance in the crowd, you have to do things differently from the crowd. And so that means at a very basic level, at some point, you've got to break with consensus and go into an asset that is not working, that's discounted, and maybe continue to be broken or neglected or unloved for you know, a long period of time. So yeah, going back specifically to his career, I would say that you know when you look at his investments in Japan, obviously, those are out of favor for 15 years or so before they really started working in the 1970s. But then even more interestingly, when they did start working, they worked for a very long time, uh, 20 years, culminated in a bubble that technically the Japanese market still hasn't recovered from. But you know, when you kind of trace that back and look at his portfolio in the Tilburton Growth Fund, he was rotating out of Japan and into the US in the early 1980s because he said that in his view, the U.S. stocks were the cheapest they'd ever been in his lifetime, including the depression. And so that takes enormous self-control and discipline to be sitting in a portfolio that's working extremely well and then see these, you know, these huge bargains, in your view, that no one else agrees with. That's why they're huge bargains. People think you're crazy if you go into them, but he did. And he rotated 62%, I believe, it was over 60% of the Timberland Growth Fund into US stocks in the early 1980s. This is around the time when, you know, Volcker was raising interest rates to kill inflation. Commodities were the big investment deal in the US. The death of equities headline on Newsweek had come out. It's just a, he saw an opportunity there that was worth ditching all these other things that were working fantastically well and going into. And of course, as we know, in hindsight, it was the start of, you know, fantastic, maybe one of the largest bull markets the US has ever had going from 1982 to, to the year 2000. And so, yeah, he was willing to do that and sit there and just grin and bear it and say it's the right thing. And it goes back to that confidence and independent thinking we talked about earlier on the podcast. He just had the, the will and the conviction to do it because it was rational and he thought it was right and he thought it would work out and he didn't care what you, what you thought. 
if you wanted to leave or sell shares in this fund, that's okay. So I think a good transition point here is to look at markets today. The U.S. has had a heck of a run over the past, you know, since the great financial crisis. So that obviously leads investors that are looking for more pessimistic situations to look at international markets, which you've written about in your annual report. And then I also mentioned the disparity in the small cap space. So what are you seeing in today's markets? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. U.S. small caps and international stocks, I think, are both very intriguing. You know, with U.S. small caps, if you look back over the history of the market, it's really unusual for large cap stocks to lead the market and have the superior returns over time. It's always been small caps outperformed by a hefty margin. And really, when I think about, you know, like the last, gosh, 15 years or more, small caps have been very expensive. They've been at a big premium because that's where typically a lot of the growth is. But that's really changed in the last few years, especially through COVID. And there are kind of two things I think they're at play there. First of all, there's the conventional wisdom that small cap stocks will lead you into the recession, right? And then they'll be the first ones to lead you out too. So it's kind of this double play. And so I think there's a lot of anxiety in the market, as we know, about the prospects for a recession. Everyone's been forecasting it for a long time. It hasn't happened. You know, we'll see. I think there are, you know, parts of of the economy that are, you could argue, are in recession. But nevertheless, that's certainly a big piece of why small caps are discounted because they're not likely to bottom, you know, before the recession. So people are just kind of sitting on their hands in that regard. But also, and I think this is more valid as an argument, it goes back to the the misallocation of, of credit and debt over the last 10, 15, 20 years, maybe not 20 years, but, you know, since the great financial crisis, the zero bound interest rate regime, you know, with small caps, they just don't, they don't access capital markets the way large caps do. They hold bank debt typically. And a lot of it has floating interest rates attached to it. And a lot of these companies are, you know, have been kind of sustaining their capital allocation programs through more debt issuance or staying relevant in their industry by issuing more debt at those low rates. And so the problem is, you know, when you get into kind of a classic recession and credit really contract, it's already in the process of contracting, of course, those companies will have financing problems. And so that is a more legitimate kind of pall hanging over the small cap space, because a lot of them do legitimately have higher debt balances and floating rate debt that could be challenging to sustain or refinance over time. But if you're willing to go in and take a more granular look and look at the individual names, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. So you can find stocks trading you know, well below 10 times earnings, three, five times cash flow, five times EBITDA. These are pretty well-run companies. You know, they're not necessarily big growth stories, but you know, at those valuations, you know, they could do well. So that's where we're spending, you know, the majority of our time really from a research standpoint is just uh, getting that that same wish list ready to go. And, um, you know, there are just tons of examples of just, you know, companies, pretty well-run companies trading at book value. But people don't want to pay attention to that because, you know, there's you've got the AI momentum play and the Magnificent Seven, and it's just human nature. And then on the international side, Oh gosh, you know, there's a, it's been a disaster investing there for the last like 10 years. It's vastly underperformed the US market. 
the valuation levels are very low. And I think, you know, in both cases, whether it's U.S. small caps or the international space, you're looking at valuations relative to U.S. large cap stocks that are as low and as discounted as they've been in the last 25 years. So we're talking about some really low valuations and hurdles from an investment standpoint. But, you know, the arguments to take a closer look at international stocks are certainly compiling. You know, just look at what COVID's done to trade and the way trade is realigned. You know, China is no longer our largest trade partner. Mexico is. There are issues kind of all over from a supply chain standpoint. It's raised the costs of, of doing business. And so U.S. consumers are, are paying more. But at the same time, there are also important advantages, which are the central banks in the emerging markets in particular are out of step with the U.S. and developed markets, meaning that they're already through their tightening phase. They're looking at cutting rates and we're still tightening and combating inflation. So what that really means more than anything else is that the markets are separating. Like if you're a stock picker, you're kind of reverting back to an environment that Sir John thrived in, where a country-specific discount can emerge and it's doing its own thing and it's not tied to the U.S. Federal Reserve you don't have to worry about all the gaming of when you know the rate cuts are going to appear and how that affects duration plays and equities and, and so on. You know, you're you're kind of playing your own game and you don't have a lot of competition to look at those stocks. And so that's like the perfect environment to pick. You know, if if you look at a market like the UK, it's been out of favor for oh wow, I don't know, six or seven years. It started with uh, Brexit. If anyone even remembers that, that was a disaster you know, for UK equities. Everyone got too confused by what was going to happen in the trade alliances and the euro. And then COVID hit, you know, another disaster basically for every economy. And then the inflation came. So that market has just been left behind for five or six years or more. So you, know, you could go look at the UK and find some great companies, reasonable multiples. So we we haven't done any buying there lately, but you know, last uh, year during the, uh, this is 2022, during the war in Ukraine, when that broke out, European equities generally just, they really got overly pessimistic. So we did you know, buy some stocks at that point, both in the UK and in mainland Europe. So there's a lot to look at and think about. And uh, you know, I'm not a, I wouldn't say you know, we're doomsayers on the dollar, but there are real concerns about the budget deficits and the impact that's had on the stability of treasuries in the last year or two. You know, a lot of investors don't really see that. Foreign investors don't see that as a safe space they once did, for lack of better words. And you're seeing, because of the trade realignments, a lot of countries are doing business in their local currencies, which means they're not going and buying dollars. So if we continue to run these large deficits, you could make the argument that you need some diversification away from the dollar. I wouldn't, you know, I don't think you need to go crazy, but it probably makes sense to have a little bit of diversification there. So that's just another argument on top of the already cheap stocks. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot to look at and think about. And uh, you don't hear a lot of people advocating that or, or doing that right now. It's picking up some steam, but it's still far off from where it could. It's funny you mentioned the UK. We have a investing community here where we talk about stocks quite often. And we have one member from the UK that he just loves this stuff. He just sifts through 
every single company he can and finding the best bargains. And he's like, you know, I'm open to finding the best bargains I can wherever at in the world, but I'm finding a lot of them in the UK. And he shared a similar sentiment to you to where uh, 2022 especially is when he was finding a lot of great ideas. And I wanted to uh, also ask you about China. I just checked Alibaba's stock price here in mid-December and it's hitting new lows on the year around $70 a share. Is China something else, another country that you've been interested in, or is there geopolitical concerns that keep you out of that country? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier Alibaba. So we own that from, let's just say, roughly mid 2015 to mid 2020. We haven't owned anything in China since. And part of that was just the changing geopolitical environment. Like I remember you know, making that, Lauren and I, you know, discussing that decision in mid-2020, because there were still, you know, cheap stocks in the U.S. during that time, market hadn't fully recovered. And, uh, but, you know, you had all the back and forth between Trump and Xi, and then you had the regulations coming in on the tech companies. And it was one of the situations where quantitatively, we didn't, we didn't need to sell Alibaba, but just sheer unease, with the risk environment prompted it. And I remember thinking, I've got to you know, call our clients and say, you know, we're going to do this. There'll be some capital gains. I'm sorry for that, but we feel like we need to do it. And it's one of the very few times we've ever ridden kind of our quantitative discipline from a sales standpoint. And so that worked out. But I mean, the stock went up you know, for several more months. So we, we certainly didn't time it well. But yeah, I think that you know, looking at it today, it, it keeps hitting my screen. Alibaba trades at seven and a half times earnings. I mean, this is, it has my full attention. I'll say that. Where we go from here, I'm not sure. But I do take notice of investors saying China's uninvestable and these really, and I, I, I see where it's coming from. And, and, and I agree that, you know, if you don't know where you stand from a property rights standpoint, that's a big deal. So, you know, I haven't forgotten what happened to the people invested in the education stocks couple of years ago, wiped out overnight. I think they've come back now since. I read that somewhere. But anyhow, that those are difficult matters. I mean, there and you know, there is no plug in our DCF for a CEO disappearing in the middle of the night. So there are risks there. There are real risks. But at some point valuations get so low that yeah, they, they certainly get on your radar. And they're on our radar. I just honestly I don't know yet. But yeah, the valuations are really low. China will continue to be a powerful economy. They've they've got some issues for sure with the property and the regulations, but it'd be, I think it's a dangerous, a dangerous idea to just write it off for good. You point to something really interesting there where, you know, we mentioned the quality aspect and one piece that sort of reminds me of that approach is you sleep pretty well at night owning a lot of these types of businesses. And I think that's what can keep a lot of people out of these more pessimistic areas of the market where there's these unknown unknowns, there's the geopolitical concerns in You know, there's just those risks that maybe you can't fully communicate, but you can feel them and you can sense them in the investing uh, community. So I think you're touching on something really important there where there's really this qualitative aspect where you need to pull in these sort of risks and factor them into the valuations to where, you know, you're still getting a really good bargain, but you're you still feel that confidence that you're pricing in a lot of that risk. Yeah. And that I really, now that I'm thinking more about that Alibaba decision, a lot of it was tied around a fear over that VIE structure. 
you know, at the end of the day, what do you really own? You own a tracking stock if you own it through the ADR. Now, you could go buy it on the Hong Kong exchange. And I think that's probably wise. You know, I, I, I doubt that. I think all that regulatory stuff is likely calmed down for now. I think China's going back the other way. Like they've kind of realized that they've ever corrected and they need outside capital to come in, which is very helpful. But yeah, it's, um, they're tricky, tricky questions. I mean, but when you've got a whole, you know, range of stocks to look at that appear discounted, you can kind of pick and choose how you want to engage and what kind of risk you want to take on. And sometimes those risks are just too hard or too uncertain, or maybe you just buy a smaller position. That's the other way around it. Decide you just can't stay away, just buy a 1% position or something that's not, it's not going to matter. You know, if, you, if it gets hammered, you'll be okay. You'll survive. And if it goes up exponentially, you'll benefit. So, you know, there are lots of ways to approach that risk. But yeah, I think the, the chase for quality is probably, it's, it feels crowded to me. We've done it too. But, you know, really, when you think about the last time we bought a mass, it was kind of back in, in 2020. Because I tell you, every time I, I read, you know, a, a manager's comments or see them interviewed or see a podcast, it just feels like everybody's looking for the exact same thing. They want the steady cash flows. They want the quality. They want, you know, the durability. And, you know, when you get too many people chasing the same thing, it's hard to find those opportunities. So, I mean, a lot of what we do around quality has to take place during big market dislocations because it's the only time you can really get a, a bargain doing it. And Sir John always kind of cautioned us, you know, on these environments where, you know, he said just generally that when he started on Wall Street, there are only 12 analysts, 12. Now they're, what? Over half a million CFAs, you know, he certainly thought that, you know, the, the job of a professional money manager is far harder than, than when he first started out. So you really have to be diligent about looking at things that are out of favor and neglected. Or, you know, the great thing about small caps is you can find companies that don't even have analyst coverage. I mean, that's like a, a veritable playground, you know, for a real research analyst. I also wanted to mention that Sir John, he not only bought during this Max Payne biggest bargain type scenarios, but he also wasn't afraid to short things or bet against things that, you know, just had peak optimism. You know, everyone was going crazy in terms of all the money they were making. And he uh, is pretty well known for shorting the tech bubble in the late 90s. And I was uh, quite surprised to read in your 2022 annual letter how you uh, you know talked about the parallels you saw in 2021 and 2022, the parallels to the tech bubble in the late 90s and the way Sir John shorted them. And you mentioned the uh, FTX ad in the Super Bowl, <laughs> how that reminded you of the things that people saw in the late 90s. I, I think that FTX ad, I went back and watched it. It was, they're essentially saying, don't miss out. Don't miss out on this, you know, this uh, new future we're seeing. So talk to us about how this approach of seeing that optimism that people are pricing in, and it's just totally irrational, how that plays into your value investing framework. It's another key input for sure. You know, it really just goes back to, you know, both Lauren and I, started our careers. Let's see, I got into the industry in November of 1998. And I worked on the sell side in a research department of an investment bank that was owned by, eventually owned by SunTrust, it's called Robinson Free. Now it's Truist Securities. And so the first things I saw were the internet bubble and how 
you know, I worked on, I was a low man on the totem pole on a bank research team. And let me tell you whose phone didn't ring during the dot-com bubble. It was the bank research teams. But, you know, the internet analysts and all these people were just, you know, having the time of their lives. And so I remember vividly just that environment. This was one of my first lessons and what a fantastic lesson in human psychology to start at that time. And uh, Lauren started a year later. She was a year behind me in college. And so it was probably about two years later that Sir John was preparing to seed her. And so she was in constant contact with him. And I remember vividly, my father-in-law was participating with Sir John in that, that short strategy. So they were shorting stocks that, you know, right before IPO lockup that they thought would decline. And he did it for a few months and he said, you know, I'm not worth it. I can't, I can't handle the stress of this. It's too much. <laughs> but obviously, you know, Sir John kept with it. And that trade went against him for a while too. He was, he was early, but he held on. And I've, I've heard that he shorted more that was kind of outside of our purview on the same basis. But everything about that period just, I can see it like it happened last week. These images, just all of the experiences stick with you. And it kind of becomes a frame of reference. And that, I think that's the benefit of being in the markets for a long time. You start to accumulate these experiences. And I remember, you know, I mentioned earlier kind of the fervor and excitement of being on the sell side during that period. Trading was exploding. All the deals were up. There were steak dinners. You know, you got bonuses in your in your paycheck you didn't even know were coming. And then I remember vividly 2001 and 2002 and that environment turned into monthly layoffs, you know, across the, the whole firm. So it was, it was just kind of a, getting a master's class in market psychology and how these things go. And yeah, I remember the ads from the Super Bowl back in 2000 and the sock puppet and, and all of that stuff. And so it was just super familiar to me. And then, you know, in terms of, you know, what we were shorting during that period. And again, we, shorting is not a constant feature to what we do. But occasionally when we see things like Sir John, it makes sense to, you know, put in some downside protection. And if it goes well, maybe you'll, you'll even profit, you know, with, with excess returns. But yeah, I mean, stocks back in 2000, the ones that, you know, Lauren was shorting when she started out, like five times sales was an exorbitant valuation. And at the end of 2021, I think there were almost 800 stocks trading at 20 times sales. It was just, it was crazy. And, you know, it just didn't make sense. And of course, no one, we couldn't predict, you know, what would make it stop. But when it did, it did. And what's interesting now, though, is just how, you know, with the AI fervor, it's all kind of come or selectively come roaring back. It's the market, it just never ceases to surprise you for sure. But, you know, when you can draw on your experiences and they date that far back, that's, it just reinforces your conviction because you've seen it before. And it's hard to figure out the particulars, but you can kind of see how things are going to end up. So like, I mean, even, and I think the big lesson that people need to realize, you know, if you're looking at NVIDIA, what a great company. I mean, we don't own it, but, you know, they've done everything right. You know, they, they got into, you know, the gaming chips and now the AI chips, they've been a step ahead of the industry, you know, fast sales growth, high margins, you know, what more could you ask for in a company? 
But you know, when you're trading at 30, 40 times sales, which I know they have been within the last 12 months, it's very difficult to make money as an investor. So you just go back and you look at like Microsoft, another company that is just, they've done an extraordinary job as a company, great company. Over the last 20 years, they've done a lot of things right. But if you had bought them in 1999, trading at 23 times sales, you would have been lost in the woods for 16 years. You didn't make money for 16 years, even though it was still a well-run company throughout that period. You know, they, they got into gaming. They built out the cloud and, and fought off Google. They've done a lot of things right. But you know, if, you don't, if you don't get the valuation right, bad things can happen. Let's put it that way. I wanted to mention a quote from Sir John here that you put at, that was the, in the forward to investing the Templeton way which you and your wife, Lauren Templeton wrote. He wrote at the very start of the foreword, I am approaching my 95th birthday and believe that there has never been a better time to be alive. We should be deeply grateful to be born in this age of unbelievable prosperity. Investors to this day ask me for investing advice or to express my concerns about the global economy. Throughout history, people have focused too little on the opportunities that problems present in investing and in life in general. The 21st century offers great hope and glorious promise, perhaps a new golden age of opportunity, end quote. And I found this aspect of Sir John to be a bit of fresh air for me personally. You know, in the financial world, it's the fear, the doom, the gloom. That's what dominates the headlines and it drives all the clicks. And, you know, it's so hard to get away from sometimes when you're on social media and whatnot. And I'd love for you to speak more to this innate optimism that Sir John had, because it's obviously a key part of investing well and part of his success. And, you know, it's just so easy to get caught up in these types of things that are happening. And a, a few that come to mind, you mentioned the U.S. dollar and, you know, the U.S. deficits that are happening currently. And, you know, you have debt problems globally even. And then in the U.S., you also have massive wealth inequality an ever-increasing political divide. I could probably go on and on for the list of things that sort of dominate the headlines. So I'd love for you to talk more about, you know, the way Sir John would sort of see things today in terms of being optimistic about the future going forward. You know, I think there are a number of, a number of thoughts come to mind. You know, one thing I'll say, and uh, I mean, I can remember several times being in meetings with um, Sir John and Lauren, and he would just look at us and just say, I am so jealous of you. You are going to see so many things happen. And I wish I could see them and I wish I could experience them. You have no idea. And that was his, his attitude. And I think that there are a couple of things at play. First of all, his life you know, spanned, just about spanned the 20th century. So think of all the amazing things he saw with his own two eyes. And he went through all these cycles where you know the sky was falling and there were routes in the market and calamities here and calamities there. But every time if you invested, you do better over time. And then you just look at the standard of living. So, I mean, there was just incontrovertible evidence all around you of the benefits of capitalism, of scientific discovery, of empowering individuals to go and pursue you know, life and create wealth. I just think it he saw it on all those levels as an investor and just as a human being. And I think he stood in all of that. And I also think there's something interesting that I think about the human mind, which is its frailty in just seeing the real effects of compound interest over time. 
And compound interest, we can think of it mathematically, but we can also think of it in terms of human talent and discovery and scientific research and how these things build on each other over time. And you think about computing and Moore's law and all the progress that came out of that. And I think just fundamentally, most people are too short-term in nature and focus. And it's easy to get caught up in the negative headlines. They absolutely get our attention. But in reality, when you look at the standard of living, it's only gone higher and higher and higher and higher. So, I mean, now, you know, and Sir John's used the example, and I'm sure Warren Buffett has too, because he, I think he has the same kind of mindset around these things. You know, someone in the, the lower income or more modest means of today's society lives far better than the Rockefellers did back in their heyday. And so the standard of living and the things we have at our disposal, they just keep getting better and better and better. And, and you know, as an investor, you can participate in that, of course. Uh, and that's what you should be focused on doing over the long term. And so, yeah, he was an optimist. And I think you have to be an optimist to be a really good investor. Now, what's fascinating about him and his you know, psychological makeup was he did have the rational thinking and temperament to short the dot-com bubble and do things, you know, that, well, we're pessimistic. You know, when he saw the, the unbridled optimism or euphoria, he could get on the other side of that too. But those are always short-term kind of trade-oriented things. He was without question, you know, a long-term optimist. It pays off. You know, if you're an investor, it doesn't make sense to be pessimistic all the time. It's like trying to short the market all the time. That's a dangerous idea. Yeah, there's this, uh, I think you're pointing to something there where there's, you know, the human innovation, the technological advancements, you have all these sort of tailwinds at your back, but people, they oftentimes seem to focus on some of the headwinds that are coming our way. And you mentioned the short-termism, a lot of these headwinds are short-term and, you know, historically humans have tended to continue to progress and overcome whatever challenges that come their way. And I think back to Sir John again, you know, part of me is like, oh, of course he was an optimist when he saw like the U.S., uh, and it's huge rise post Great Depression. But I think he still had that, you know, even throughout the Great Depression, he always sort of believed that the, this tailwind was behind us and eventually things would turn back the other direction. So, yeah, it, it seems to be something that was, you know, sort of ingrained from him from a very early age. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the generation that went through the Depression and then World War II, those were catastrophic circumstances. I mean, just horrible. It tested every every fiber of of those you know people that went through that, and yet they emerged and and came back and built this industrial boom that's never been rivaled since. You know, when you start from like the 1950s as a starting point up to the current day, I mean, the American economic miracle is is almost unfathomable how much has been accomplished since then. And so it, it's really just a matter of empiricism. But, you know, believing in humans and and our ability to persevere and overcome. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. What a fun discussion chatting a lot about a person we can just learn so much from. There's plenty of books on Sir John. He wrote one that's on my shelf. I'm blanking on the name of it, but uh, it's such a good book just on not only investing, just like living a good life, you know, living in this honorable way and having that higher level purpose, just so many things to think about and take away from such an amazing person. So really enjoyed having you on the show. And it's really an honor to, we had your wife Lauren on previously, and I'll link that discussion in the show notes. And it's great to have you on as well. 
So before I close out the episode here, how about I just give you a final handoff to the audience if they'd like to get in touch with you, learn more about your fund and any other resources you'd like to mention. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I really appreciate the time with you too, Clay. It was a fun discussion and I love talking about Sir John. He's a very large figure in, in my life and I'm forever indebted to him. And anything I can do to, you know, honor his legacy is I'm always more than happy to have the opportunity to do that. So yeah. But if you know, if you want to follow us or learn more about how we look at things or how we're trying to, you know, further that investment legacy as investors and what we do, you go to our website. We have a commentary that we put out periodically. Our website is templetonphillips.com. Sign up for the commentary. We've authored books. They're available on Amazon. They're listed on that website. The other thing I'll say is we recently printed this, which is just a little pamphlet of um, Sir John's quotes. And I reference this all the time, certainly weekly, almost daily. And uh, so uh, Lauren and I discussed it. And uh, you know, if you are interested in a copy of this and you are a US resident, we're not gonna necessarily send all these overseas, just go to our, our website, find our email, let's connect at Templeton and Phillips, tell us you, you know, you'd like a copy and we'll send you one in the mail, send your address too. But yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to link your website and all the books related to Sir John in the show notes. There's, there's at least a handful of them. So if the audience is interested in checking those out. So thanks again, Scott. Thank you, Clay. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.